Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Nathan Fink, and this is New Hampshire Family Now, a show about building family in the Granite State. Today on the show, we're joined by award-winning journalist, author, and former host of NHPR's The Exchange, Laura Kanoy, to talk perspective, parenthood, and her new novel, The Shopkeeper of Alsace. I'm really excited about this one. New Hampshire Family Now is brought to you by the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Since 1962, the Charitable Foundation has worked hand-in-hand with generous and visionary citizens to maximize the power of giving and support, collaborate, and lead innovative initiatives. Initiatives like New Hampshire Tomorrow, which is focused on making sure children and families have access to education, health care, and career pathways to ensure every family member thrives. To learn more about New Hampshire Charitable Foundation and all their initiatives, go to www. .nhcf.org. This podcast was also brought to you by Family Support New Hampshire. Family Support New Hampshire is NH's coalition of family resource centers and family strengthening programs that exist to ensure Granite State families have access to resources so both caregivers and children can succeed because supported families are strong families. To find a family resource center near you, visit www.fsnh.org. Hey, it's Nathan, co-host of New Hampshire Family Now. I wanted to take a quick break from the show because it occurred to me the other day that I've never asked you to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribing is free, and when you do it, it helps our placement algorithms, making it that much easier for caregivers across New Hampshire to find valuable information and strategies for their families. Also, you'll be alerted when a new episode drops. And if you like the show, leaving a review helps us that much more. So go to wherever you get your podcast, type in New Hampshire Family Now, and as the kids say, smash that subscribe button. I say click it, because if you smash it, then you're going to need a new one. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today on the show, I'm beyond excited, or maybe honored is a better word for it, to welcome Laura Kanoy, speaker, moderator, author, not to mention award-winning journalist and former host of NHPR's The Exchange, where for 25 years, you, Laura Kanoy, brought us intelligence, depth, civility into the homes of Granite Staters everywhere. Laura, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the show. Well, right back at you. Thank you for having me, Nathan. On a personal note, when I first moved to New Hampshire in 2008, your voice was the one that made me feel at home. So if it gets nostalgic here, that's why. (laughs) Well, a lot of people have said that when they moved to New Hampshire, I helped them understand their new state. Now, I do want to start with the exchange because for 25 years and thousands of interviews from everyone from Barack Obama to Senators McCain and Bernie Sanders and icons of journalism like Barbara Walters, not to mention experts, doctors and everyday granite staters. And, you know, when I read about your approach, I read a lot about your intense preparation. But, you know, when I started thinking about our conversation, I can't get away from after those interviews are over. Because at the end of the day, you're a human being who has had to hear all these things, probably wrestle with them, digested them. What do you do with all of that information now? That's a really rich question on both the intellectual level and also on the personal level. The easier answer is on the intellectual level. I am great at cocktail parties because I know a little bit about everything. (laughs) So any conversation, I can kind of wiggle my way and go, ha ha, I know something about that. (laughs) So I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. I'm an expert on nothing, but I know just enough to be dangerous on 
many, 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 many subjects. So that makes life a little easier in a way because you're not, you know, you've got a baseline when it comes to all of the issues that are always uh, swirling around us. On a more personal level, though, I think that, um, you know, doing all these interviews affects you in two ways. One, I've met so many people who just you know, pull me out of my little complaints. Um, I used to call them, I'll never complain again interviews, you know, people with terrible health challenges or horrible family situations or unbelievable tragedies that had happened to them. You know, I talked to some of the refugees that moved to New Hampshire over the course of the 90s and the 2000s, you know, being chased by groups who wanted to kill them. I mean, at, at, at age 14, I talked to a woman who survived the Rwandan genocide. She was locked in a bathroom with six other women protected by a, a minister in her town um, for six months. So, you know, and I'm complaining because I didn't have, you know, the brand of cat litter that I wanted at the store. So, you know, it really gives you perspective to realize that people have incredible challenges and yet they are able to surmount them. And then and, and so I would walk away from those interviews just very inspired. But I would also say again, Nathan, on the personal level, and I, I love the question, is that it is a lot of work to carry other people's stories. And I'm sure anyone out there who is a therapist um, or um, a minister or a priest, you know, can understand what I'm talking about. You carry and honor and process people's stories every day. And some of those stories are quite painful. Right. And at some level, you know, they affect you. And so um, it is weighty to have all these stories and to honor them in the way that they deserve to be honored. You know, our own narrative always feels kind of up for debate in terms of how the information that we gather or come across informs the way we proceed and what we do with it. Is there ever a time you can recall when you wish you hadn't had all these voices? Yes, many, many, many times, especially towards the last 10 years, eight years of my career as society became angrier, as society became more violent, as white supremacy started to feel more and more comfortable being out loud. As we saw, you know, mass shootings in our grocery stores, in our theaters, our schools, um, and these continue, houses of worship. So, um, yeah, after a while, I just, it became too weighty, to be honest. It was just, it was just too much. And each time one of these things happened, it just felt worse. And you talked about carrying it around when you're carrying around so much trauma and violence and and basically a, a ripped up society where we have these incidents um, repeatedly and more and more, um, it's hard to see the joy and see the good things that are going on because it's your job. You know, there's a saying in news, you know, it ain't news if the plane lands on time. So <laughs> when you keep carrying those negative stories around because it's your job to present them to people, you do have a hard time remembering, you know, oh, life is also beautiful. Yeah. You know, to my mind, we always try to, or I try to, with the things that I'm coming across and learning, express them in such a way that I can exercise them. And I understand that you've written a novel recently, The Shopkeeper of Elsass. And I'm so curious about your mindset now when uh, approaching long form story, because in an interview like this or a conversation like this, I'm trying to propel us along a short form story arc. And yet 
when novel writing, you're having to deal with everything from topic to character to desires to obstacles, epiphanies and, and antagonists. So how is your mindset kind of given where we've been already shifted when approaching novel writing or where has it maybe stayed the same? Oh, it's a great question. And um, it's been really, really hard because um, I'm very good at telling the facts of what happened. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. What I'm not good at is telling how people felt about it (laughs) and the sort of internal struggles that they have and what they say and what they don't say and what they regret saying. And, you know, it's the fiction that's been um, that's been really, really hard. The research has been great. I love doing that part, but um, turning it into a fictionalized account of real things that happened has been has been really challenging. I just recently finally decided to hire what's called a developmental editor, which is someone who looks at everything you've done and says, this scene doesn't work. This scene doesn't work. This character is weird. Throw this out. Um, So I did a lot of research. I found somebody who's amazing, who's been in the industry for, you know, 30 years. She's tough, tough, tough. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but it's been fantastic because um, she keeps saying, show, don't tell. I've been telling people this happened in Alsace in 1932. This happened in Alsace in 1933, you know, Um, and she says, yeah, but how did how do you characters feel about that? I'm good at the reporting part, but on the fiction part, you know, it's a ton of work, but it's an absolute joy. Now, are you finding because of this new addition to your process, which is this person going through, are you finding that stories are existing that you didn't know were there outside of the information? Yes. Yes. And so sort of magic because she says, well, what about that? And why didn't you tell me about this person? And why don't you include this person? And I think, okay, okay, I can do that. And then as I think about it, all these other stories start to come out. Um, So it's been wonderful. It's been unbelievably hard, but it's been wonderful. One of my favorite books um, on writing is called On Writing, Stephen King's book about his process. There's this one uh, period he was, he worked as a young reporter, he worked for this paper and he was recounting the demonstration this reporter had given him of taking a black magic marker and line editing. And he asked the guy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm taking out everything that's not part of the story. When I was younger, and this is pre-children, I loved writing so much, but found myself in the technical pursuit because if I could just figure out how a story was crafted, there would be something to say in it. But what I suspected was, and I know this now, that saying things arrives, I think, in a different way or more organic way. And I'm curious because you chose this, you know, this shopkeeper of Alsace. Is there anything you find from your own life that you draw from in terms of influencing the types of stories that you read or write? Well, I only read fiction and friends of mine will go, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, we know. (laughs) Because reading nonfiction just feels like work to me. I was at NHPR for 25 years. I was a journalist for 30 years. So I only read fiction. But I remember um, a very intelligent uh, host of one of the major shows at NPR when I was there saying to a group of us once, read everything and not just newspapers and, and magazines and, you know, news websites, you know, read fiction because it helps you understand how people are processing things. And it helps helps you 
think of a unique way to look on the events of the world because characters in fiction are inside people's heads. Mm. I'm a huge, huge fan of fiction. Even when I was at NHPR, I, I only read fiction. So that continues to this day. I guess to the other part of your question, um, I'm, I've always been a huge history buff. I Early on in my career, I thought I would either major in history or in sort of communications and so forth, because they say journalism is the first draft of, of history, right? You've heard that. Right. So I loved that about journalism. I thought, okay, someday what I'm doing right now is going to become part of history. And that's pretty cool. I'm drawn to historical fiction, um, given that interest in history. And um, the book that I'm currently writing is a piece of historical fiction, heavily, heavily, heavily based on a true story that was shared with me by a, a French family many years ago. When I was younger, I was fascinated by the dissolution of family and relationships. Fascinated. I would read anything. I was a big kind of 80s realist like Raymond Carver, Amy Hempel, Richard Ford guy. And then I had a family. And the last thing I want to read about is the dissolution of the family because I'm trying to keep the wheels on my own. Now, do you find yourself in any scenarios that way? Because you got historical fiction. Do you find that the course of your life has informed the things that you're more receptive to in terms of topic? Well, I'd like to actually address that in terms of the way that I'm writing, because I think that I could not have written this book 20 years ago. First of all, I wouldn't have time because I was still at NHPR at that point. But second of all, um, I have seen so much and felt so much, you know, over the past 25 years, you know, the weight of those stories that we talked about earlier, Nathan. Also, uh, because my book does take place, uh, it starts in World War One and it ends at the end of World War Two. Being a mother of sons, especially let's face it, war age sons, my sons are 19 and 23. Mm -hmm. um, the scenes where my female characters are contemplating the, the, the idea of their sons going off to war, you know, I feel those, you know, I look at my 19 year old and I go, okay, that would be you, you know? Um, so I think that um, living my life as I have being a journalist, seeing and feeling and sharing all these stories, but also being a mother has very much informed my writing. Also, this is going to sound really corny, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> the pandemic influenced my writing, not so much that, oh, there's a pandemic. I have to stay home. Good. I'll write six novels because um, during the pandemic, when people would say, oh, what's your pandemic hobby? I would get really aggressive and say, I don't have one. Yeah. I'm working 12 hours a day because literally the pandemic, like, we just worked constantly, dawn to dusk, um, just trying to figure out what was going on. But I will say that um, the pandemic was obviously for me as a privileged person working from home was not nearly as bad as World War II. Like there's no comparison. Right. But the idea of like just this waking up every morning and going, oh, here it is again. When is this going to end? And Obviously, what my characters go through with World War One and World War Two is a gazillion, gazillion times different. But I felt like I was able to access just a little teeny bit of that, that desperation and that, that hopelessness. Yeah. That change in perspective over COVID made you wrestle with what you thought you knew about the world itself. 
We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Laura Kanoy. Don't go anywhere. Many thanks to New Hampshire's Office of Social and Emotional Wellness for sponsoring this podcast. Started within New Hampshire's Department of Education, the Office of Social and Emotional Wellness consolidates policy development and implements projects and programs that are focused on health and wellness with an emphasis on behavioral health of all students, youth, and families. To learn more about the Department of Education and its many programs and approaches, visit www.education.nh.gov. Today's show was also brought to you by Burgu Media, a full-service media company dedicated to helping nonprofits realize impact stories for print, video, social, and legacy media, and more. Both budget-conscious and grant-friendly, Burgu Media helps your organization celebrate the humans in human services. Learn more at burgumedia.com. And now back to our interview with Laura Kanoy. So I, I have to say, though, I when I found out you had two sons, I laughed out loud. I, or may, maybe I looked at the ceiling and shook my fist because the noise, something was breaking. Because I have two sons as well. And I, I know that you were somewhere at like 30, 37, maybe 38 when you had your, your first son. And so this is kind of comes out of my endless need for advice from one parent to another raising children. So how does being one of three girls and what you know about your upbringing square against raising sons? Yeah, that's a tricky question. There's so much embedded in there. Um, first of all, when I was growing up, it was a very different time, right? I mean, you know, my parents just basically let us go, you know, <laughs> it was a very hands off era of parenting, which is, I would say, 80%, 90% to the good, right? Because we just had to figure it out. So um, there's that. Feel It's weird. I feel uncomfortable talking about being raised in a family of all girls versus raising boys, because I don't want to get involved in gender stereotyping. What I will say is um, two things. One is having grown up in a family of all girls and pull every cliche out about boys that you want to. And, and that's my guys, you know, they beat each other up and they tease each other mercilessly. And I think, how can you say that to your brother? That's so mean, you know, but that's just like just what they do. I do sometimes look at them and go like, what planet are you from? Exactly. I don't get the planet boy, but I feel weird saying that too, because I know boys who are, you know, different and, and you know, we're in the midst right now of sort of a, a, a look at gender and all those stereotypes. I will say that when they were you know, young, you know, toddlers, babies, and people would see me out, you know, with my little boys. And to a person, they would say, oh, you have boys. They're so much easier than girls. And Nathan, that enraged me as a journalist. And I would always call people on this. So I hope anybody who's ever said that will listen to me right now. Look at suicide rates, homicide rates, substance abuse rates, you know, alcohol abuse rates, rates of incarceration, car accidents, everything. It's boys. So you tell me that raising sons is easier than daughters. So uh, right. <laughs> a couple of people got that message because that really upset me when people would say that. To me, it's a very similar question to this long, long form story arc. I guess at the root of it and the advice I'm looking for is now you know, with four year old and seven year old is how do you know you're on the right track? Because even with your novel, right, how do you know the story that is being told in this family unit on this page is the right story? Yeah, I think if you think you're on the right track, you either were just having a good day or you're kidding yourself. I mean, it's not very satisfying. Um, you know, I mean, 
it's so cliche, Nathan, but like every kid is different, right? I mean, right. our first son was a, a wonderful eater and he would eat sweet potatoes and carrots and, you know, whatever we put at him. And we patted ourselves on the back and we thought, oh, it's because we're such wonderful parents and we set such a good example. And then our second kid, like, you know, he basically wouldn't touch a vegetable until he was like 12, you know? So, I mean, <laughs> yes, you think you're a great parent and maybe you're a great parent for that kid, but then you have another kid and you're not such a great parent for that kid. Right. Or if you only have one child, you think you're a great parent and maybe you are until they're seven and you don't know how to parent that seven-year-old. You know how to parent the six-year-old, but you don't know what to do with the seven-year-old or the 13-year-old or the 20-year-old um, because they always change right. and society changes. We have underappreciated, probably not you, but others have, I think, self-included, underappreciated the effect of the pandemic on these young minds. And, you know, my boys are big, so they're young men. So you think, well, they're OK, you know, but when the pandemic started, they were 20 and 17 formative years for the brain and the spirit. And so um, I try to appreciate when they're being difficult that, you know, they're still processing what happened. But the thing is, every kid's different. Every kid is always changing. And even if they did have the capacity to not change, which would be stupid, the society and the world around them is constantly changing. So honestly, my best advice is just to try to stay calm and do your best. It is a satisfying answer. Here's why. One, you made me laugh, which is super satisfying. And then two, you know, being the parent that they have and what that takes to be receptive, I think, to the changes that are inevitable is what we're after here. I don't I, maybe that it's a silly question because being a good parent doesn't exist. Being the parent they have and change worthy alongside them or processing is really all you can do. We're changing as parents, too. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you at 40 is not the same person as you at 50. Like at 50, I was like, I'm I'm done cooking dinner for you people. <laughs> oh my God. I think it was kind of the pandemic that put me over the edge because no one was going out to eat. There were no more like annual dinner for the track team at the high school. Yeah. You know, it was just so I think right around age 55 and definitely with the pandemic, I just I'm just done. Well, I think I'm looking forward to the hurdle that is socks. I'm just so over putting socks on people. I can't believe it. But um, so I, I want to turn to your podcast, Read Local New Hampshire. Uh, and I'm fascinated. And this is kind of a really, I guess, a conversation about mindsets. I'm so fascinated by your hyper localization and love of the Granite State, which I share, not being from here, but I share it. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that. What is it that's so interesting to you about Granite State writers themselves? And why should we be be reading them? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I love the podcast. Um, it's very niche. I mean, it's only, you know, only New Hampshire authors, New Hampshire bookstores, New Hampshire libraries. So it's kind of reading community in New Hampshire. You know, those who write, those who distribute books, whether they're a store or a library and those who read, obviously. So um, but it's very niche. The cool thing is no one else is going to do this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> there's plenty of podcasts about reading and writing, but I don't think there's another one um, specifically on reading community in New Hampshire. So that's cool. My sort of motto, if I could put it that way for the podcast, is widen your reading horizons by reading in your own backyard. I think that we're all so taken in by, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the USA Today top 10 list. And then there's bookstagrammers, you know, these sort of influencers who say you should read this and you should read that. And Listen, I follow some of these people, too, because I love book recommendations. But these sort of big national folks aren't going to give 
Granite State authors much of a look. I mean, they will some of them. There are some nationally known authors from the Granite State. I In fact, this week's podcast is Joe Moninger, and he's very successful and, you know, the whole thing. So stay tuned for that. Um, but there's so much good writing and good reading community going on in New Hampshire that, that people don't pay attention to. Yeah. And there are so many wonderful stories that you'll discover if you just, you know, sort of get off the the New York Times bestseller list and see what's in your local bookstore. And Jocelyn Williams is my mentor, and she's written a few books, Woman in the Woods and Down from Casca Mountain. Wonderful author. Uh, so I share your great love of New Hampshire stories and all of the talent that's here. Now, if people want to learn more about what you're up to and all your great work, where can they go? I'm so glad you asked that question, Nathan. It's super easy. It's lauracanoy.com, all one word. And Kanoy, just in case people didn't know, is K-N-O-Y. So you go to my website and right on the left-hand corner, there's, you know, my blog, my podcast, you know, how you can contact me, the whole thing. Very clicky. Laura Kanoy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. What a treat. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to the Samuel P. Hunt Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Established in 1951, Samuel P. Hunt Foundation is a Manchester-based, independent nonprofit that provides grants primarily for the arts, children and youth services, faith-based organizations, educational institutions, healthcare, and human services. This podcast was brought to you by Nixon Peabody, who delivers exceptional legal services for clients in the community by combining high performance, an entrepreneurial spirit, deep engagement, and an unwavering commitment to a culture of collaboration, diversity, and humanity. Nixon Peabody works with universities, hospitals, and nonprofits of every size to maximize impact. For more information, visit nixonpeabody.com. Today's show was also brought to you by Merrimack County Savings Bank, who proudly supports the mission and efforts of New Hampshire Children's Trust. Founded in 1867, Merrimack has served people, businesses, nonprofits, and municipalities in central and southern New Hampshire for over 155 years by treating everyone with care, respect, and compassion. Visit your local offices in Bow, Concord, Kentuckook, Hookset, and Nashua, or go to www.themerrimack.com. New Hampshire Family Now is listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play New Hampshire Family Now.